Hi, and welcome to the Family Business Podcast. I'm your host, Russ Hayworth, and in each episode, I will discuss and explore the key challenges facing family businesses today. As a family business advisor, I'm passionate about helping families to overcome the complex and unique challenges that come from being in business together. So if what I cover in the show resonates with you, I'm here to help, and I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me at fanbizpodcast.com forward slash work with Russ. You can also sign up to the newsletter there and receive the latest blogs, podcasts and videos directly in your inbox. I would like to thank my friends at the Institute for Family Business for their continuing support for what I'm doing with this show. The IFB is a unique community of family businesses with common challenges, interests, values and goals. To find out more about their work, visit ifb.org.uk. Let's get on with the show. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Family Business Podcast. I am joined for the second time now by Daniel Tremarki from KPMG. Daniel, last time we spoke, I made uh, a little jibe about you having the longest uh, job title I'd seen for a, for a long time. For those in the audience who may not have heard that previous episode, perhaps you could introduce uh, who you are, what you do, and when we last spoke, you were just about to embark on an uh, adventure to Canada. Just give us an update on how that's going. Thank you, Russ. It's it's great to be here again. It's it has been eighteen months since we last spoke, but it doesn't doesn't feel all that long ago at all. So, as you mentioned, I think nineteen or eighteen months ago, I was making the move across to Canada. So I've recently joined our, our Canadian practice and continue to work from a family governance and, and family succession perspective here with clients. But the job title, unfortunately, does remain as long as ever because I also keep keep my global role. So I'm also the, the managing director of our global centre of excellence for family business. So working very closely with our global leadership team on all things family business, which is great for me to get that perspective across the globe. So... The title remains the same, but the, the weather is a little bit cooler at, at this side of the pond. Yeah, and obviously we spoke pre-COVID. It wasn't even on the, the horizon when we last spoke, and I was very jealous that you were going to be moving over to, to Canada and being able to explore, but I'm guessing that's not really been on the on the cards much. Yeah, no, it's it's been an interesting 12 months, to say the least, but... I think with the weather starting to turn and and hoping for a brighter and, and better 2021, so things are things are looking good. Excellent. And the topic we are going to be covering today is creating value through governance, and this is linked to a report that has been produced um, by the Step Project and KPMG as part of a, a joint initiative. Before we get into the sort of detail around what's contained within that particular paper. Could you give us an overview of the uh, collaboration that you're doing, who, who the STEP project are and, and what their aim is and take us through that? Definitely. So the, the STEP project global consortium, they're a, a group of affiliated universities and, and academics across the globe who focus on research around sustaining entrepreneurial families and around family business research. And for us, it was a, a great partnership. We've been working with them back since 2019 now to really bring together the two worlds of academia and professional practice to bring out insights that cutting edge in terms of what their findings are and 
really supporting families. So there's a, a survey back in 2019 that focused on the impact of changing demographics within family businesses and how that was impacting issues like succession, governance, and we've, we've built that out into the article series, which we're going to focus on today, and, and specifically the governance piece, to really understand the value of, of family governance and corporate governance within these business families. So it, it's been a great partnership to, to try and bring those worlds together and, and learn from each other, but for the, for the greater good. Yeah, and I think that's a, a really important point, because there is an awful lot of academic research that happens on particular aspects of families being in business together. What can sometimes happen is a lot of that gets kept in the kind of academic community because it is they're very academic studies. And I guess the the collaboration between yourselves and STEP is almost like a translation service uh, of what that research actually means in the practical terms and how that can be applied to families. Would that be a fair assessment? Definitely. And we're, we're seeing that there's a, another report that's actually going to be coming out later this week um, around COVID and the global response of family businesses. And even just in that exercise, appreciating the way in which we were looking at the data and speaking to families and the way in which they were coming at it, that difference in, in expertise and perspective, to your point, it was uncovering things that neither of us individually probably would have identified, but collectively we're able to actually really build off each other's specialisms. And, and that was really what was giving us, I guess, the insights that have built out that report and built out this article series. Yeah, fantastic. And the particular article we're looking at is creating value through governance and, and good governance. There are four papers on the um, site, and we'll link that up in the, the show notes as well. So we're talking very specifically specifically even about one paper but there are others that people can go and have a read of i've read them that they're exceptional they're really really insightful so i'd recommend people going and doing that but we're talking about the value of govern or creating value through governance and i did a, a whole series of shows back in early 2020 on what governance is but again there may be people in the audience who have not had the, the opportunity to listen to those yet. For, so for those who are coming to governance for perhaps the first time, and it's a big word, it kind of stretches across multiple um, disciplines. What, what do we mean when we're talking about governance in a family business context? I think, and it's, it's funny you mentioned those, those podcasts that, or those earlier episodes, because that was exactly one of the things I went back to when we were looking at this project, because I, I recommend everyone goes back and has a listen to those because you're right, the topic itself is so broad. Really, we talk about governance as a vehicle to support families in, in achieving what they're trying to achieve. And it, it sounds very kind of cumbersome or it sounds very kind of nebulous, but it's actually because that definition of success is quite individual to those families. But really, governance... In the corporate world, we see it as red tape, it's bureaucratic, it, it slows businesses down. But from a family business sense, we actually see it much more as an enabler. So we're looking at decision-making frameworks. We're looking at communication channels. We're looking at the structures that need to exist to help facilitate that. So it's all in pursuit of, of what the family's trying to achieve. And governance is really that, that vehicle to do that. So how do we have these conversations as a family? Who needs to be in the room when we have them? 
how do we support family members? How do we support the business? And and so really that's the premise I kind of come at governance with. And this article in particular, we focus more on the family governance side. So if you break governance down into its various layers, often you've got governance at the management level, working with the executive team, the CEO, CFO. You've got board level governance at those people providing oversight to management. And then you move into shareholder governance at the ownership level. And then finally, that family governance level. So if we, if we break governance down into those four levels, really what we were focusing on in this article was around the family governance um, and the ownership governance and how that can be a supporter to, to achieving what the family and the business are there to, to try and achieve. Yeah. Uh, and again, I think as people, they, they may be listening and it's kind of approaching their governance structures for the first time from a family governance perspective, as you say, there, there'll be an element of corporate governance irrespective of the size of the business, whether that's the, the articles or shareholders agreement or broader um, corporate governance for, for larger businesses as well. But, but, but approaching it from a family business perspective, I, I know you, you're good friends with, with Ken McCracken as well, and he, he talks about informal governance kind of being present within families and there can be this danger this risk of thinking introducing formal governance is kind of pushing all of that to one side and going what you've been doing so far is wrong you need to be doing this but that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about formalizing governance is it it's more like you say enhancing what uh, is already there to, to act as an enabler for the family a hundred percent. And and I had the privilege of, of working alongside Ken for a few years. And that, that idea of natural governance that you mentioned, and the fact that many of these families, whether explicitly or not, think they have governance do. And, and defining governance in the way that we just talked about it previously helps to unpick that because so much of this is about that flexibility point. And, and we pick that up in the article as well around how these, these governance systems and structures and processes that are being put in place are really there to grow and build on what is already there. And, and we're only really looking at it from a formalization perspective. It's, it's funny, it's often what's the least amount of change required. So it's rather than a complete overhaul or a complete transformation, it's quite an iterative process. And we're looking at two main triggers we're seeing is there any change in the family so succession being a huge part of that are there any changes in complexity of the business in terms of the business growing rapidly declining purchasing a new business selling a business all of these different triggers that impact either the complexity of the family or the complexity of the wealth are really what drive this formalization process that you were referencing. And in your experience, is it that kind of event where there is a change in, in the business or the family done it that kind of drives this formalization? So if a, if a family is listening to this now and, and, and is experiencing a change in either the family dynamics or a shift in, in uh, perhaps another generation starting to become involved, or they've experienced, again, as a result of the pandemic, positive or negative impacts on the business, is now a good time to be thinking, okay, what governance do we need in place from here on in? How can we build on what's already there and help the business to thrive going forward? I think definitely. I think 
this year has been a lot of families that I've spoken to have talked about the amplification and the acceleration that COVID has brought with them. And that's not just on their family side, but on their, their business side in terms of moving into new markets, in terms of changing and pivoting their operating model. This has been quite a fertile year for how we go about managing change. And I think as, as humans and as people, our appetite to change, even by force, has amplified. So uh, I compare this to even something with, within KPMG when we went virtual at the start of the pandemic. That happened in, in three days versus happening over three months or three years. And so I'm seeing that with families that I'm working with as well, their ability to use digital solutions or engage in different ways because it's happened by force some of that hesitation is not there. So as a time to look at how family governance is evolving within your family, now is the perfect time to have that conversation because many people see the status quo as, as kind of being outdated just mm -hmm. based on, on what we've gone through. Yeah, and you mentioned um, something there that I think I'd, I'd like to sort of delve a little bit into in terms of change. Now, the reality is we live in a, a state of constant change really i mean t today is always going to be different to to yesterday and, and again tomorrow but it seems that the pace of change in a lot of things is accelerating markets are having to adapt quicker to consumer needs you, you mentioned about the move to virtual i know of a, a family business who already had a project in mind a nine-month project of integrating a particular type of software into their systems in order to allow people to, to work online. And that was completed within nine days rather than nine months as a, as a time frame. Now, without perhaps looking at the IT project manager in that scenario and going, was it really nine months? It, it does, the, this pace of change seems to be far quicker. And I think that that can sometimes butt against the way in which family governance can be constructed because in my view it's not something that can be rushed through and again i think that's the, the what we're saying is although the pace of change is quick and, and family governance needs to be flexible and adaptable is not to rush this yes i completely agree i think when you're looking at say that digital transformation piece or that it piece there's obviously very little emotion attached to that change. So it's change which is for the benefit of the business and it's change that people can get behind. And, and yes, change is difficult, but the difference that you're, you're making with family governance is that there's that emotional attachment, there's that emotional connection to this because changes in governance often mean a change in power. It means a change in responsibility. Uh, it means a change in reward. And all of those things come much more emotionally charged than moving to working from home or, or changing an operating model within a business. So we often talk about going as fast as the slowest person when you're working with a family governance solution or you're working with a family governance issue. And there's a really good model that Landsberg Gersick and, and a few others back in 1999, they put together a paper called Stages and Transitions. And it talked about how, as individuals, we often have to deal with change differently and we deal with it at different speeds. So there's that level of even readiness to change and appetite to change. Then it was about disengaging from the current situation. 
you've then got that exploration of well, if we're if we're leaving what we're currently doing, what are the various options that we have? Then you've got the difficult choice of actually picking one, and then you move to implementation. So when you look at those five stages as to how you work through that and appreciating that different family members will be at different stages of that cycle, I think that's very important. I, I remember working with with a family where certain individuals were already at implementation. They were ready to push through this change because it benefited them, but also because they saw the greater good of why they were doing it. But what they hadn't appreciated was, in this case, their siblings and one of their parents wasn't at that point and they weren't ready to make that change. So I think having an acknowledgement around that, to your point, is is vital in making sure that there's long-term success because you also want people to be bought into why they're making that change. And often that's that's the issue. That's the point of most discussion is not what are we doing, but why are we doing it? Mm-hmm. And I think that's an important question for everyone to ask when they're when managing or going through that kind of change. Yeah, and I think as well, it's not to to be put off of starting either a review of governance or looking to, to implement some, some formalization around it because people are aren't at the same stage. They're not at the point where they just want to hit the switch and go, come on, let's make this live. I don't think you'll find many circumstances where everybody in a family is at exactly the same point when it comes to, to this stuff. But but for me, again, that's not a reason to, to not do it. It's just there has to be an appreciation amongst that family system that there will be people at different stages. Uh, and I guess that's where our role comes in is that we're there to help facilitate that and to, to make people aware where it's perhaps not quite as obvious to, to those who are uh, sort of right in, in the middle of it. I, I think that independence and objectivity that we can bring to that system and to that family is, is vital. And we don't have that vested interest or when you think to the three circle model and the various perspectives of people that sit within that, having that independent and external party that can help facilitate those discussions, you or I aren't coming up with the solution. Um, That solution has to be to my earlier point has to be owned by the family collectively. And there has Mm -hmm. to be buy-in to the solution and the outcome, but often they do need that support to actually facilitate that process potentially de-escalate some of the emotion that's in the discussion. And often what I find is we speak to families where you, on face value there seems to be a large disconnect and, and kind of very little alignment. But what you often find is it's the, the 10 or 15% of misalignment that has clouded the fact that actually 75 80% of their desires and their definitions of success are actually highly aligned. Mm. It's just that that emotive 10% that is potentially blocking them from having that discussion. So I think having that external perspective and and having that framework to bring structure to it, to potentially, again, de-escalate it is is very helpful. Yeah, I'm not going to disagree with you uh, on that. The title of the show is Creating Value Through Governance. What do we mean by value? Because, again, we've, we've outlined already that the successful outcome of most governance projects is driven by what the family are wanting rather than, say, you or I as practitioners. It's not for us to dictate what that success looks like. But if we're talking about the value that governance can add, what, what, do, what do we mean by that? 
Well, I think there's there's two aspects to that, and, and this talks to the power of, of the work we're doing with the STEP Project Global Consortium, which is when we looked back at 2019 at the use of family governance practices, we found that actually family businesses that adopt more than one family governance tool compared to others did show higher levels of, of entrepreneurial orientation and performance. So there is data and evidence out there that says the use of, of family governance tools can support the performance of the business and the entrepreneurial spirit, which is often a key driver for a lot of these multi-generational families. So I think when we talk about creating value, there's the value within the business um, and the performance, but then there's also the value within the family aspect. So that ability to create transparency, to create accountability, to give clearer I suppose, to give clarity on the boundaries of the roles of family in that pursuit of family harmony, I think that's where we're seeing that value. So it's, and it's important that different families will measure those differently. The weight that they place on financial metrics and non-financial metrics will vary. But what we see across the board is that families do use both of those metrics. It's never just a pure financial decision. It's never a pure non-financial decision. So to, to try and create value on both of those fronts was really the goal of, of what we were trying to, to come away with in, in drafting this. Yeah, and that reminds me of a conversation I um, had with Dennis Jaffe once about the, the value that governance can add in terms of building resilience within the family system as well. And you can see this, the audience won't because it's obviously audio, but Dennis's book borrowed from your grandchildren is, is over my shoulder and in that as well that the commonality of those businesses that have survived 100 years is the presence of some form of um, governance it's not necessarily that it's the same legal entity that has survived over that 100 years but the family enterprise in the entrepreneurial spirit that is what has, has lasted and that's down to the presence of, of family um, governance and I think the important point you made there as well was that it's not just about monetary value. When we say about creating value through governance, it's not because well, we're not going to sell this business, so why do we need to create value through it? Because that links it directly to, to monetary aspects. We're talking about the emotional value as well and the reassurance and the accountability and the, the kind of non-financial elements that can come from effective governance. Yeah, I, I think that that element of, of socio-emotional wealth and that that ties to purpose are very important for a lot of families. And so, and when we say governance tools, I mean we're talking about policies, we're talking about the ideas of family councils or family constitutions or family charters. So those those governance models or those governance tools exist in various shapes and forms and levels of degrees of formality and informality. But you're right, it's, it's tying back to that purpose and that metric around what does the family want to achieve. And, I mean, a perfect example, one of the, the tools is obviously the idea of a, a family council. That could be something as informal as once a year getting together and, and having a family barbecue. It could be something as structured as almost a pseudo-formal board where you're having monthly meetings with designate, designated and appointed family members 
driving specific initiatives, either around the business, around the education of the next gen, around social cohesion. There's, there's so many ways in which you can apply this. And I think that flexibility ties to this ability to create value and, and get away from that stigma of, of governance actually being a negative and something to avoid. It's, it's, it should really be seen because of its ability to be self-defined in the private mm-hmm. company space. It can be seen as an enabler and, and actually very beneficial. Yeah, absolutely. I think that one of the takeaways from the two examples you gave there of the, the kind of informal barbecue side of it up to the, the quasi-board structure format is that will appeal to different elements of the audience. So some will listen to the, the, the kind of barbecue format and think that's what a great idea, what a perfect way for us to, to all get together to talk about this stuff, to agree stuff in a, in a relaxed, informal um, manner. Others will go, well, what a fantastic idea having that board structure is because it formalizes it, it structures it. And I think the key is that when families look into implement governance is that it needs to be what works for them. Again, not a one-size-fits-all, not one of the kind of off-the-shelf solutions. Here's someone else's family charter, put your name on the top of it, and then everyone signs it. It's much more of an interactive and bespoke process than just being fed stuff from advisors to say this is what you must have. Mm-hmm. I think the, the concept of best practice is it's always an interesting discussion because, and I think, I mean, I, I'm looking at Dennis's book here on my desk, as you mentioned it before, and it's when you, when you talk to that and you look to see, well, what do these successful families have in common? And it's not that they all chose a specific governance tool, it's the fact that they chose a governance tool, full stop. That governance tool was then, so that is the best practice element, that, that having something helps. What that thing is, is that is that unknown, I guess, from a best practice perspective, because it is more about the family's history and, and how they act and behave as a family, because that will drive this. It's how they want to act going forward it's it's that family dynamics it's that family legacy those are the deciding factors that may make you sit in a in a specific point of view when it comes to should we allow spouses to be owners i mean it's a great conversation it's a great dinner party conversation when it's not your family yeah. um, but, but having that conversation there's there's five reasons why you should and there's five reasons why you shouldn't and it's it's up to each family to decide where they sit on that but that doesn't eliminate the, the best practice element of actually having that conversation and having something does show evident, like the evidence is there that it shows that that does help and that does build that value. So I think that's the important, I suppose, defining point on the best practice exists conceptually, but best practice isn't, to your point, taking someone else's kind of governance model and, and putting your name at the top of it. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And Another thing that the report highlights and, and highlights really well is the value of governance outweighing the obstacles that are often there when implementing it. We've we've covered the value side of it, and historically, over over many different episodes, we've we've looked at some of the obstacles to to this being implemented. Again, in your your experience, what are some of the more common obstacles that you see that that families either deliberately or unintentionally put in the way when we're talking about 
governance. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we've touched on the major one so far, which is that reticence to change. I think understanding kind of where people sit currently and, and that impact on, well, hold on, what would this conversation or what would this constitution mean for me? Does this mean that I'm changing my role? Does this give me more opportunities in the future, less opportunities in the future? So I think there's an element of change that is is innately kind of worrisome for some people and it's managing that through the education piece and and through some of the points that we've already talked about in terms of appreciating that this isn't something that is meant to be placed upon a family to box them in it's something that is there for them to mold and shape to work for them so I think that change obstacle is one of the biggest and then we look at I guess some of the the negative aspects of, of the positives So we talked about alignment. So misalignment is obviously an issue. We talked about the importance of communication. So miscommunication is an issue. So governance in itself is quite unique that it actually is the solution to to the problems that it it could almost create or that it, 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 it has. And so I think anything that comes back to clarity versus lack of transparency, clear boundaries versus kind of muddy waters as to what is my role i'm a shareholder who doesn't work in the business so what information am i entitled to what decisions do i get to make as a shareholder versus my sibling who is running the business are there decisions whilst we're both equal shareholders what decisions will they make that i won't so i think for me those those obstacles often come out as actually learning points and teaching points to the ultimate solution and that's the way we kind of try to approach it in our process is to uncover the issues that we know are normal and predictable for a lot of families um, but how they choose to address them is unique the last one that i would add is the one around conflict and obviously conflict resolution and we talked about why now and it reminds me and i think i might have even used this in the last podcast 18 months ago but when's the best time to plant a tree and it's always that idea of doing something and doing something now adds value and it's Mm -hmm. important to do it as well almost before it's necessary i have a lot of conversations with first generation founders who governance does seem like a scary word because they've grown up having full autonomy and so the idea of including their spouse including their children including non-family advisors does does worry them and Mm -hmm. it's it's only when you can have that discussion to say well actually let's flip that let's let's create something that we know is going to be needed in future generations but let's do it while you're here to share your experience and your knowledge because the world that they will be taking on this business especially we're seeing a lot of families move from that family-owned family-run to potentially family-owned but non-family-run. And you mentioned it earlier, the concept of family business versus business family. Mm. So let's, let's support the next generation in their entrepreneurship, but let's do it in a way that you can help shape as the, the senior generation. And so that deflates some of this conflict um, or potential conflict before it even comes to, comes to the fore. Yeah, and that, that brings me to, to one of my next the points from the the report as well is that the effective governance 
ideally is cohesive and captures multi-generational perspectives. And I think what you've just mentioned there highlights how that can happen. And I don't know about you, but I often get contacted by members of a particular generation who are becoming more aware of things like governance and are wanting to start that uh, process, but perhaps are getting some resistance, shall we say, from senior generation or from other members in, in their um, family who are not quite, as we were talking about earlier, at the same stage of that um, journey or process as the person uh, prompting the, the conversation. But do you have examples where families have embraced the kind of multi-generational approach where, you know, all voices are equal, where this this kind of cohesive and, and joint up approach to tackling the the challenge of implementing governance? Mm-hmm. No, I, I think as you were as you were talking through that, it kind of reminded me of probably the different audience members that you have on, on something like this. And it would be a combination of senior generation family members, next generation family members, non-family executives who are working with these families, and then obviously advisors as well. And, and each of those four groups will all come at this differently. But that idea that you talked about around multi-generational connectivity I think there's there's a couple of examples within the article series. One of the, because it was case study based, we actually had 37 cases from across the globe that we did deep um, qualitative interviews with building off of the 2019 survey data and, and also the kind of the, the pre-pandemic and post-pandemic approach. And 19 of those cases we've profiled on the website and we've been able to help them share some of their stories to allow families to to learn from and one of those was a family in India and to the point you were just making there's there's conditions within their family charter and family constitution that actually at the family board's discretion they look to support the next generation both in mentorship and in financial support for new ventures that they're building outside of the business Mm -hmm. and that's very much to that entrepreneurial spirit aspect of this we understand that this business may not be the, the only business the family's in or the business that we're in for the next 30 50 100 years but actually as a business family it's that entrepreneurial spirit that we're looking to build so to to instill that within future generations we are going to formalize the structure of the way we support another example that comes to mind was a family in portugal where they talked about how that co-creation process worked and it was both generations coming together with an appreciation that these rules in many cases weren't even for either of those generations they were for the future generations and so the senior generation in that in that instance truly believed that the next generation had to be part of that creation process because it was their children and and the grandchildren of the first generation that would be living these and, and being bound by these so creating that that intergenerational connectivity was vital and they saw the benefits of doing that to to create that cohesion that you mentioned Mm. and it does uh, another part of the benefit of good effective and, and positive governance is that it does allow the the family to understand what the ambition is for the 
the business overall that we've mentioned a couple of times the word purpose what's the purpose why does the business exist what's it there for it does allow that to be contextualized and articulated but also the the flexibility element means that that's not setting stone it's not something where you're making a decision right now that is binding on every future generation for 150 years hence it it's something that reflects the viewpoints of the current family involved within that family system and the ownership of, of that business and then it, the encouragement i think is to continue to review that to adapt it to make sure it remains relevant again as we we mentioned earlier the pace of change in, in the world making sure that it all, all reflects that side of things and again i think that's another huge value is that it's not something that you do now stick in a drawer and you know you look back in 25 years time and go remember that one time we we put a family charter together it becomes a living document, it becomes a, a living process. I think it's it's much the same as the way this conversation has been quite iterative. We've, we've come back to certain points time and time again because they build on each other. It's that same logic within this is that I would always recommend with the families that I, I'm working with that you're putting in, we talk about sunset clauses in kind of legal documents, but this is something that annually bring this back out doesn't mean every year you have to change it but every year bring it back out make sure it is still relevant one of the the families in the uk that we we worked with on this project kind of talked about we understand that the governance models we put in place 10 years ago don't apply today and and we're not ignorant to that fact you wouldn't if you treated your your family like a business you wouldn't leave your business strategy unchanged for generations or you wouldn't look to, to review it and update it based on the different inputs that you're seeing. And, and I think that applying that logic to family governance is important because you're giving the chance to build on it, um, to have that buy-in. I think it's very important. Yeah, absolutely agree. Where can people find out more about the report, read what we're talking about? And obviously there's, there's three other reports and, and the big paper you spoke about as well. Where, where can people find those? Yes, so the, the series itself is called Empowering the Future of Family Business. And I'm sure we can share the links within the show notes to that. Yeah. So as you mentioned, there's four articles within this series. So we focused on on governance, but also on succession, the role of women in family business, uh, and also legacy and how legacy is developed and, and grown and, and utilised. So each of those articles are accompanied by those case profiles that I mentioned, um, which are all housed on the website. But if people wanted to also connect with me on LinkedIn or, or reach out, I'm more than happy to, to share and discuss them. And as you mentioned, the last point is is later this week we're launching the the global COVID survey or COVID report, which is actually looking at the role. We had over 3,000 responses globally, and it's really tied wow. into how family businesses in, in our mind and based on what we've seen and heard and, and discussed with them are really well-placed to, to lead that rejuvenation of the global economy and, and actually really, I guess, how they master that comeback and how they become a part of it. So... We can share a link to that as well. And, and as I said, always happy to, to discuss further and, and always enjoy these conversations. Yeah, likewise. And thank you for your time, for your insights and, uh, and expertise on this subject. As you mentioned, really enjoyable conversations and uh, look forward to the next one. No, my pleasure. Look forward to, to doing it again soon. Cheers. Take care, man. Thank you. You too. 
Thanks for listening. I really do appreciate it. If you found the show helpful, please consider leaving a review on iTunes and remember to subscribe to our newsletter. If what I've covered in the show resonates with what you are facing in your own family business, I can help. I provide consultancy support to family businesses of all sizes, so please get in touch if you'd like to know more. Head over to fanbizpodcast.com forward slash work with Russ. Until next time, take care.